I think we need to think about sexual health and our overall health as these things that come back and intimately influence one another. And we can't treat them as separate <laughs> and we can't neglect one because that's going to have negative consequences for the other. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Happy New Year, everybody. I wish you nothing but the best for 2021. And we are going into a new and unknown but very exciting chapter. I'm not sure I've had more exciting news ever for BBXX than to let all of you know that we are officially launching our online platform this month. The BBXX platform is the hub for all things intimacy and relationships. It is your go-to resource from a database of content that you can filter based on if you want to read, watch, listen, a database of key players in this industry, from experts to brands and organizations, companies we like and believe in their work to give you a BBXX certified stamp of approval. An online store featuring products and services, and most importantly, a community of curious, and engaged people like you who aren't afraid to ask the difficult questions, who want to dig deep, who want to put in the work into better understanding themselves so that they can live deeper connections and more fulfilling relationships with other people as a result. So I am unbelievably excited to bring all of this to you. There is a free membership and there are premium membership levels which include discounts on products and services, bonus content, affiliate opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most importantly, discounts on coaching. Because along with the BBXX platform, we are launching BBXX Coaching with yours truly, a certified life and relationship coach here to help you design and achieve the life you want and deserve, but are perhaps too afraid to find out whether it's possible or not. Through coaching, we will dive deep into 
understanding you, understanding the obstacles getting in the way of you living that life you want, and create goals and roadmaps to help you achieve them. I'm currently working with clients on anything from wanting to stop drinking, going after a promotion at work, wanting to better connect with people in their experiences with dating and finding a meaningful partnership, working through issues in a current relationship, or getting through a breakup. So if you'd like to find out more about how to go after the wonderful things that might scare you, and how to take everything you might have learned or faced or struggled with in 2020 and harness that power towards making 2021 the best year of your life yet, I'd invite you to book a discovery call with the link in the description of this podcast episode by emailing me at Sasha, S-A-S-Z-A, at bbxx.world, or checking out the link in bio in our Instagram account to book a free 30-minute discovery call with me to see if coaching might be a good fit for you. Dr. Justin Miller is a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. He runs the Sex and Psychology blog and podcast and is the author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Dr. Leigh Miller is an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard University, where he taught for several years, and he is also a prolific researcher who has published more than 50 academic works. Justin, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to dive into, you know, some of the research that you explore through your work, which kind of as we get started, we'll touch on things such as sexual fantasy, which is a large part of what you often talk about and the book you've written. However, I loved kind of studying for this interview because you talk about so many other things and just these tidbits. I am a numbers or a kind of research fan, I will say. And so it was really fun for me to see kind of how many different topics of research there were for us to discuss together, obviously kind of all related and an underlying very important level. But I'm excited to kind of jump around and see how much of it we can get through. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm excited to talk with you about all things sex. All the things. It's so funny because I have this just expression that I use uh, that kind of everything that's about sex isn't actually about sex, and everything that's not about sex is actually about sex. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe just everything is about sex. I don't know. That could also be true. We'll have to kind of come back at the end and see where we stand on that. So to begin, I would love to have you tell our listeners a bit about the work you do, kind of the range of the work you do, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So my 
career has taken kind of an unexpected path. I went to graduate school to get a doctorate in social psychology, specifically studying the psychology of romantic relationships. And I thought I was going to leave graduate school and be a college professor and just kind of find my job and stay there forever and uh, just kind of have that be what I was going to do with my life. But in the process of graduate school, I ended up being a teaching assistant for this human sexuality course that totally opened up my eyes to this world of sex research that was out there. And I found it absolutely fascinating. But at the same time, it was also frustrating because there were so many questions that I had and that other students in the class had about sex that had never really been scientifically tested before. So People were saying a lot of things, but there wasn't really any scientific backing behind them. And so that's kind of what motivated me to go into the field in the first place was because I felt like this was an area that was really important, right? Sex is one of the most important things in our lives, and it's the biggest source of relationship conflicts and disagreements. And so I wanted to go into this area to help shine a light on a subject that isn't talked about nearly enough and where there's just not enough research to answer the important questions that people have. So when I left graduate school, I ended up being a college professor for 10 years and jumped around to a few different universities. And I left about two and a half years ago to go off and do my own thing because the longer you spend in academics, the more you get sidetracked doing things that just don't really feel like you're making an impact anymore, right? So I left to really start my own business that is all about communicating about the science of sex with the public. So I run a blog, it's called Sex and Psychology, where I blog about the latest sex research several times per week. I write books, I write for various magazines and websites. I also have a consulting business where I work with sexual health and wellness companies on developing new products and marketing them effectively to consumers and also helping to break a lot of the taboos around sex toys and sexual health products so that people can access tools that can really enhance their pleasure. So for me, my career, my everyday life is really different, radically different from one day to the next because some days I'm blogging, some days I'm uh, teaching a lecture or workshop, other days I'm working with a sex toy company. Um, but it's all really fun and I absolutely love what I'm doing and wouldn't change it for anything. I couldn't help but kind of laugh a bit in my head thinking the expression variety is the spice of life, which people often use to refer to sex. And we can later get into whether or not that's actually true. But just thinking of your, you know, schedule and the different exciting projects you're working on, it seems like you've got some nice spice and variety going on for yourself. There's a lot of spice. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on kind of a few things throughout there. The fact that just there isn't a lot of science and research going into this and funding, which we can get into as well, but there's just so much anecdotal advice that gets passed around and it's not always grounded in, in fact. And because there are so many stereotypes out there, this is really an area where misinformation can just travel so quickly. And so I love that idea of trying to bring a bit more kind of information and perspective to the conversation. And I especially love some of the research that I came across um, 
that really kind of is surprising or the opposite. I love when things are just disproven, when stereotypes are uh, found to be unfounded and the research actually ends up showing the the opposite. And so that really important difference between anecdotal advice and perspective versus what does the science and research say? Um, and diving deeper into this really important area of relationships and of life and how sex is kind of can be this metaphor. And so at BBXX, we talk about a lot of people come to us to learn about sex and sexuality, but we talk about so much more. It's about intimacy. It's about connection. It's about understanding yourself. But sex can be such a great tool for all of that in terms of you need to know what you need and want and being able to understand who you are, the role you want to play in, you know, the bedroom or in a relationship. And a lot of the same communicational tools and confidence are not only relevant outside of the bedroom, but outside of a romantic relationship, you know, walking through the world in the workplace. And so looking at it, as this beautiful metaphor for developing so many important lifelong skills. And you mentioned you really focus on communicating this stuff with your audience and how I just wanted to reiterate the role of communication um, in sex and relationships and just how that's kind of the lens that we love to look at sex and sexuality through is that lens of communication with oneself and then from there kind of with others and how that builds the basis of our connections. And what you say is so true, um, especially about how there's so much anecdotal information out there. And (laughs) I, I think this stems from the fact that almost everybody has sex and almost everybody thinks they're an expert on it. And that their experiences will will generalize to everybody else. And this is why we really need the science and the data, because it turns out that a lot of times those anecdotal beliefs don't hold up to scientific scrutiny. And we find that the reality is different or it's much more complex or nuanced than the way people think it is. And so that's really a big part of the reason why I still do research in this area, but also why I think it's so important to communicate about it to the public, because we need to change a lot of those incorrect beliefs, those myths and misconceptions that we have about sex, because many of them are are really damaging to our sex lives. Absolutely. Changing those myths and misconceptions about sex and also about ourselves, which is what I think a lot of your research does in giving that perspective and helping people understand the way they think and act a bit better. And I heard, you know, in one of your other interviews, you mentioned sex as this great equalizer. And I really loved that expression because, again, as you mentioned, everybody, almost everybody has sex. And a lot of people, I think, (laughs) fancy themselves an expert. But the fact of the matter is that this is something so individual and so different from person to person, from a relationship to relationship, that a lot of experts, licensed therapists, sex therapists, etc., talk about how you can't necessarily be great at sex because it can be so different. 
Yeah, and it's problematic to start thinking of yourself as a sex god or sex goddess and and think that you've got it all figured out because the reality is that you need to communicate with any partner that you have about what it is that they like or enjoy because everybody's body is a little bit different. Everybody has some different preferences in terms of what feels good, what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy. And if you're just making all of these assumptions, you're really ultimately setting yourself up for for failure because you're going to encounter situations where somebody has likes or wants or needs that are different from the assumptions that you're bringing into that situation. Right. And that kind of growth mindset, that's something that's thrown around so much, I think, specifically in startups, but not necessarily applied to relationships. And the, just the importance of really reiterating, always be learning and growing and exploring and, you know, staying curious. And so I love that idea, too. And I'm a big fan of kind of exploring sex and sexuality later on in life um, and kind of the role it plays and how it evolves and really shining a light on the strength of sexuality later in life and some of your research and the topics that you discuss touch on that as well. So perhaps even kind of as we lead into things, talking a bit about that kind of growth mindset, why that's important and sexuality throughout the lifespan. Absolutely. And sexuality throughout the lifespan is something that is one of those really underexplored topics because almost all of the research that comes out on sexuality is based on college students, young adults, because they're the easiest population for researchers to survey. There's not a lot of research funding out there to conduct sex studies. And so many scientists are kind of limited in the participant pool that they can draw from. And so as a result, we know relatively little about sex at midlife and and especially in older age. And one of the things I find in my research is that people's sexual fantasies and desires seem to change over the course of their lives. And so that goes back to the importance of kind of having that growth mindset, because you can't just assume that if you start a relationship with somebody in your 20s and you're going to stay with them in a long-term relationship, that you're sexually compatible for the rest of your lives, right? You might have great sex early on, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're both going to want the same things 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now. And so you have to be open and willing to adapt when it comes to your sex life and, and recognize that it goes both directions, that your wants and needs may change, your partner's wants and needs may change. And so you need to have regular check-ins with your partner about how things are going, what they want, what they like, what they enjoy, because oftentimes that changes. And if you neglect the fact that it does, that's how a lot of people often end up in sexless marriages and sexless relationships. It's because they're sort of operating under this outdated model of what their partner wants or enjoys when it comes to sex, or they've never bothered to fill their partner in on how their own fantasy lives and desires have changed. And so they just become very sexually disconnected. Yeah. And just the fact that, as you said, kind of our needs, desires, wants, not only within the context of sexuality, but change, you know, in our career, in the relationship at large, what we want out of life. And so needing to 
you know, constantly revisit that, uh, whether it's within the context of sex or just kind of with ourselves and, and seeing how much things might have changed, circumstances change, other external factors can be hugely influential. And I also just think of the, the metaphor often of how even if external factors aren't changing that much, you know, our taste in food, our taste in clothing changes. And it's really understandable that we kind of have a new closet a few years later, or you can tell what's the stuff that you used to wear a few years ago and and not anymore, or the places you like to eat, just kind of your palate and your taste in general inherently. And everyone knows it's a fact that that changes, yet we don't often apply that to kind of sex and sexuality within our relationships. You can't live according to one script and one story. You can't live in that kind of static image or moment. And so constantly checking in and seeing how the story has evolved and letting things be fluid and dynamic so that they can evolve along with you and so that the relationship itself can grow and evolve. Otherwise, it's kind of restricting it and keeping it within that static moment and not allowing it to kind of blossom and grow into something so much deeper, more meaningful, and perhaps adventurous. And the research bears that out, that the people who are the most adaptable and flexible in their sex lives tend to be the most satisfied and in the happiest relationships over time. I'm thinking about a study I read recently that looked at older adults and how they define sex and how their definition of sex has changed over time, if it's changed at all. And what they found was that in this sample of older adults, that most of them, when they were younger, tended to define sex very narrowly as penetrative intercourse. And I believe all the participants in the study were heterosexual. And so it was all penile vaginal intercourse. But what they found was that as people got older, that for many of them, their definition of sex changed and it became less about this one very specific physical act. And it became more about other activities that they could engage in physically or uh, about having some real emotional intimacy with their partner as well. And the people whose definitions of sex expanded were the happiest and most fulfilled. But the older adults who retained that very strict, very narrow definition of sex were the least happy and the least satisfied, and they reported the most problems interfering with their sex lives. And so I think this really speaks to the importance of just kind of being flexible, being adaptable, and being willing to change just how you define sex and what is important to you, what's pleasurable to you. And the more that we can do that, the better equipped we'll be to navigate the future and deal with situations that might pose challenges for the more narrow definition of sex. And so by being able to expand it, it gives you more opportunities for pleasure and fulfillment. I love it. And this is why I love this so much as a metaphor for life. How much more pleasure and fulfillment is there in, you know, fill in the blank, sex, relationships, life, when you have that mindset of adaptability and flexibility and curiosity, intimacy, exploration. I love how I heard you mention one time that these check-ins, it's important because again, as we get older, the definitions change our interests. And you said, you know, you might not even realize if you're not checking in that your partner has gotten super kinky in their forties and fifties, and you could be missing out on it. (laughs) 
and that in fact, the people in those age ranges tend to have the most adventurous fantasies. And so I just love this concept of the wisdom that comes with age. So how do we just tap into that earlier and teach younger people to have that flexibility and adapt this new definition? Because as you said, when you have this narrow mindset, you're just setting yourself up for a narrow experience of the world. And when you have that kind of broad, flexible, fluid definition based in feeling versus an act or behavior, you're setting yourself up, you know, to open your mind and your world to a totally different and much more fulfilling experience. I think that it's more challenging than we give it credit for in terms of trying to cultivate this growth mindset around sex, because a lot of it is probably tied up in the way that we teach people about sex when they're younger, because we tend to define it in these very narrow ways in sex education courses. I know that in my own education growing up, the one or two days in high school where you know I had my awkward coach come in and and talk about sex with us, it was only ever about penile vaginal intercourse. There's no mention of oral sex or other activities that people might engage in. And so part of the issue is that we're kind of cultivating this narrow belief at a young age that sex is just this one thing. And that that also means that safe sex is just this one thing. It's just using condoms when you're having penile vaginal intercourse and, and you don't really need to worry about much beyond that. So I think we need to change the way that we talk about sex earlier on in life to help to expand that definition that sex isn't just this one thing. But then also another part of the issue here is that there's a lot of sexual shame too, because when people start to deviate from what they have been taught is normal when it comes to sex, and normal tends to be this very narrow thing in most people's minds. Um, But when people start to want things beyond that or do things beyond that, they often feel a lot of shame and embarrassment and anxiety. And so that puts this constraint on people sort of expanding their sexuality earlier on in life. And as people get older, they start to care a bit less about what other people think. Many of them develop more sexual confidence. And so those are other factors that sort of play a role in why, uh, you know, people in midlife might have kinkier fantasies and then be more likely to act on them. Um, But I, I think we need to be having a you know, sort of bigger conversation here about some of these social and cultural factors that come in and and just kind of make it hard in this current environment to to cultivate that growth mindset early on in life. Right, because it's not as if we're getting a certain amount of information. What we're actually getting and all of the things that aren't said is actually sending a plethora of negative subconscious messages. So we're actually coming out of our experience, you know, at least in the U.S. and I would say most parts of the world with a net negative kind of mentality. But the worst part is we don't realize it. And so like you said, you know, shame is just one of the things that comes up, but there's just, we're starting off so far behind and not because of a lack of information, but because we have already wired our brains with stuff that will take us years to work on unwiring. 
Touching on that shame aspect, as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of your research not only shines a light that's extremely helpful on people as to kind of culture and sex and sexuality as a whole, but helping them understand them themselves. And so how this research helps them reflect or perhaps kind of is a source of relief in certain cases. And so I would love to have you kind of start off by sharing a bit of the the research on, on sexual fantasy. And what I loved is that for some of this, again, anything that disproves stereotypes I love so much, whether that's based on gender or age. Um, and then what I also just find so entertaining is we tend to think we're so unique when in fact we have so, so much in common. So true. So I recently published a book called Tell Me What You Want that is based on the largest scientific study of sexual fantasies ever conducted in the United States. I surveyed more than 4,000 Americans from all 50 states, ranging in age from 18 to 87, about their favorite sexual fantasy of all time, as well as hundreds of different people, places, and things they might have ever fantasized about. And then I also asked them extensive questions about their personalities, their sexual histories, their demographic backgrounds, with the goal being that I wanted to write this book to help people better understand what people today are fantasizing about, what your fantasies might say about you, how they differ across different types of people, and then also what you need to know if you're thinking about sharing and or acting on your fantasies with a partner. I would love to have you tell our listeners how you're defining sexual fantasy uh, before sharing some of the research. Would it be, for example... In order to qualify, if somebody is thinking about things that are from the past and that have already happened or things that, you know, uh, involve activities with somebody they already know or activities that might happen in the future that are still within the scope of what they've already experienced, just kind of to help people recognize when they may or may not be engaging in fantasy and kind of what the, the definition would be to set ourselves up for better understanding the research. A sexual fantasy really is just a mental picture or image that turns you on and that you have while you're awake. So we make a distinction between sexual fantasies and sexual dreams, right? The sex dreams that you have at night are different from your fantasies because sometimes we dream about things that when we think about them while we're awake, they don't turn us on. That's nothing that we would ever normally have cross our minds. So a fantasy is really just that arousing mental picture you have during waking hours. And it can be something that you've done before, something you've never done and never want to do, or it could be something that you've never done, but you do want to do it at some point. So fantasies are sometimes desires and that they reflect our future plans or goals for our sex lives, but they don't have to be. So it's important to make that distinction between fantasy and desire because those aren't always the same thing. And I think it's also important to mention that when we're talking about sexual behavior, the things that you actually do in your sex life, that can be based in a fantasy or based in a desire or based in neither of them. Because sometimes we engage in behaviors that just kind of spontaneously happen in bed with a partner. We've never thought about them before. And maybe we find that we really like it. And then that becomes a future fantasy. So there's this 
kind of interesting connection between fantasy, desire, and behavior, but they're all sort of these unique and, and separate constructs. Thank you for that distinction. That's really helpful and important. Because people also, you know, libido versus desire, and there's so many subtle differences in this vocabulary that helps so much in terms of understanding not only the feelings, but the behaviors behind all of this. Yes, absolutely. I think it's always so important to, if you're a researcher, that you really have to operationalize and define all of these terms. And and this is something that I do in my work is that I make sure when I'm surveying people about their fantasies that I first define what a fantasy is for them to ensure that they're on the same page as me and that maybe they're not talking about their, their sexual dreams, for example, because different people I find have very different personal definitions of what a fantasy is. And I've talked to many people who say that they don't have sexual fantasies and Part of the reason they say that is because they think that a fantasy has to have some fantastical element to it, right? That it has to be this super kinky or uh, out of this world kind of thing. But no, a fantasy can be as as plain or as vanilla as, as you want it to be, right? It doesn't have to be anything, quote unquote, extreme. Perfect, perfect. While we're on the operational definitions... I'd love to hear your operational definition of desire. A sexual desire is something that you want to do. It's a longing or wanting for something in your sex life. So desires are really the the future plans and goals that we have. And it turns out that many of us harbor desires that we have never acted on before. In fact, I find that when I survey people about their favorite fantasy of all time, about 80% of them say that that fantasy is a desire. It's something that they want to make a part of their sex life at some point in the future, but only one in five people say that they've ever actually done it. So there's this huge gap between what it is that people want in their sex life and what they're actually doing. And one of the things that I argue for in my book and in my work is that if we did more to close that gap between desire and reality, that we might ultimately end up being more sexually satisfied and in happier relationships. Wonderful. Tell us a bit about some of the other things that you've kind of the takeaways from some of this research or perhaps some of the more unexpected things that came up. So for me, one of the things that I found really interesting was looking at that link between age and sexual fantasies, because this is something that hasn't really been explored before in the research. You know, almost all the studies are based on young adults, most of whom are college students, and people have a lot of stereotypes about college students and kind of think of them as these horny young people who are having these wild and crazy sex lives. And if anybody's having a threesome, it's probably them. But the reality is that in my research, I see that it's actually people in midlife in their 40s and 50s who have the most adventures and fantasies. They have more taboo fantasies, more multi-partner fantasies, more fantasies about being in a non-monogamous relationship and just trying new things in general. And I see that those fantasies tend to decrease again once people kind of hit their 60s and 70s. So, you know, there's sort of this 
inverted U curve. Like if you plot all of this on a graph where those fantasies go up till about midlife and then they sort of come down as people enter older age. And I think that makes sense because when people are younger, they haven't had a lot of sexual experience. Sex is new to them. So just doing it with one partner and without any bells and strings attached, you know, it's very exciting to them. But for people in midlife, most of them have been in long-term monogamous relationships for a while. And so their sex life has become a little bit routine and they need something to mix it up. And that's coupled with them feeling more sexually confident and uh, maybe caring less about what other people think. And so we start to see their sex lives become a bit more diverse. And then as people enter older age, well, they're sexual functioning may change, their health may change, their their needs and, and just what feels good in general may change as well. And so we start to see a bit of gravitation away from some of the more adventuresome activities and, and toward, you know, more forms of intimacy coupled very much with sex. So sex just, it, it's not static. It's very dynamic over the lifespan. Love it. And I love that mention too of confidence in there and just friendly reminder to listeners, you know, there's so much to look forward to. I think if we could just change this mentality as we get older, I think people dread it and think of it as slowing down or more monotonous. And it's like, well, no, look what awaits you. More secure sense of self, deeper self-understanding, more self-esteem, confidence, adventure richer, more adventurous sexual fantasies. There's a lot in there to kind of help us reorient our understanding of aging. Right. And, you know, I hear from a lot of people, people I'm friends with or people on social media who are always looking back and they're saying, oh, I'm 30, life is over. Oh, I'm turning 40, life is over. And I'm like, dude, you are living life wrong if that's your approach. Like your life was over 20 years ago if this is the mindset you have. Right? You peaked way too early. It's so important for us to change our views on sex and aging and recognize that sex can and often does get way better as we get older. And so we shouldn't be dreading turning older. I think in a lot of ways, there's really so much to look forward to in so many ways in which we can diversify our sexual lives and obtain more fulfillment than we ever thought possible before. Absolutely. And people do indeed report higher satisfaction later on in life, right? It depends. The trend is actually a little bit different for men and women in some of the studies I've seen where older women report being more sexually satisfied than older men. But I think part of it might be that you have a lot of men who are uh, getting older who are still retaining that very narrow definition of sex. And so if men and women are changing in different ways at different rates, that might help to explain it. And to keep you know that in mind of changing the definition, you're never too old for intimacy. Nope. I just invented that and I love it. I mean, you're also never too young for it. There are also a lot of younger adults for whom, you know, they feel a little awkward around intimacy and casual sex and how they sort of navigate that. But it turns out that when you survey young adults about kind of 
their hookup behaviors and what they want out of hookups, there's this craving for a lot of intimacy that they're not getting, right? Which tells us that even in hookup sex and casual sex, it's not just about sex, right? There's this emotional component that we want as well that many of us aren't getting, in part because I think we're just not allowing ourselves to do that. A lot of people have a hard time putting themselves in that position of emotional vulnerability because they're worried about being rejected. That's another issue that we need to deal with is kind of a lot of this insecurity that young adults have as they're approaching sex and a lot of these hangups and how we can help them to have better, more pleasurable, casual sex that meets those physical as well as intimate and emotional needs they have as well. Right. And to distinguish kind of sex and intimacy, and you can have sex with intimacy or without, but intimacy kind of referring to that connection. And you mentioned kind of younger people who might engage in sex or hookup culture. And it's so interesting because there's not a fear of getting to the next step physically with somebody, but there's this emotional barrier. And I think particularly in the United States, I'm just comparing to Latin America, for example, it seems like there's much more of this separation of these concepts, particularly thinking of sex and intimacy being different and not really allowing space for intimacy, albeit fleeting, or intimacy with strangers, intimacy in small connections, could be meeting somebody on the street. You can have these moments of intimacy and connection without necessarily having to think or plan in the space outside of that moment. So there's an interesting difference across individuals in the connection they see between intimacy and sex. And this is what psychologists refer to as our sociosexual orientation. And basically, it sort of runs on this spectrum where we have what we call an unrestricted sociosexual orientation, which is basically where you see sex and love and emotion as these separate, distinguishable things. And on the other end, you have people with a restricted orientation where they see these things as necessarily having to go together. And we do see some gender differences here, such that men tend to be more on that unrestricted side where they see sex and love as separate and uh, women being more on the restricted side where they see them as going together. And so that gender difference is part of why there's sometimes some conflict in casual sex in terms of people getting really what they want out of it because they might be going in with their very different expectations and motives. Uh, but women can very much be on that unrestricted end and men can be on the restricted side. And so part of maybe navigating sexual encounters in a way that's more productive and healthy and pleasurable for everyone involved is by having more of that matching beforehand of people who, who really think about sex in the same way as you so that you don't have people going in where they're just kind of doing the performative intimacy or where they're you know pretending to not be emotionally invested when actually they are. And so I think a big part of the issue the conflict around casual sex is that people are often pretending to be someone that they aren't. 
And as a result, they're not feeling very fulfilled by those encounters oftentimes. For me, intimacy is so different than those deeper emotions like love, attachment, that sort of thing. And that I think that, what is it called? The socio... Sociosexual orientation. Sociosexual orientation touches on because for me, those deeper emotions are kind of temporal. They're dependent on, you know, over time, you know, you can't necessarily, despite what people say, you know, fall in love in one day. Love, these deeper emotions require time and development versus connection and intimacy and vulnerability. You know, you can sit next to somebody on an airplane and have an extremely intimate conversation and a deep connection, but, you know, never see them again, not even exchange numbers. I wouldn't say that you can fall in love and like build love in the span of not even an international flight. So again, that differentiation and intimacy and connection is something kind of in the middle that um, can be beautiful and deeper, but isn't necessarily as kind of time dependent um, and so kind of being that that in-between and people's ability to tap into that. Yeah, I agree that love doesn't build up in an instant. And, and the science backs this up that there's really no such thing as love at first sight. They've actually conducted studies where they've looked at people's descriptions of how they felt when they said they had a love at first sight experience. And their descriptions really bear no resemblance to actual love. It's really lust at first sight, right? So you can feel that overwhelming physical attraction towards someone instantaneously, but, you know, love is one of those things that takes a long time to build up. And, you know, I would agree that intimacy is something that can be present whether you love someone or not. And, and oftentimes in a casual encounter, intimacy can take the form of something such as simply gazing into your partner's eyes or cuddling after sex, right? There are all kinds of ways that that can play out where there's this, this moment of connection, some emotionality to it, but it doesn't necessarily signify something deeper like love. Right. And that intimacy can kind of be through vulnerability, you know, it could even be something funny, like the ability to laugh or feel comfortable if something, you know, goes awry or, you know, trying something new and maybe it doesn't work, but it was fun anyways, that sort of kind of comfort. And, and if there is intimacy, then those explorations and moments can deepen it versus develop a barrier. And that's kind of a bit how how I see that role. And I'd love to hear, in your opinion, what some of the key ingredients for intimacy would be. Well, so when I look at people's sexual fantasies, one of the things that I see is that it's actually pretty rare for people to fantasize about completely emotionless sex. Most of the time, when they're fantasizing about sex, they're also fantasizing about meeting some emotional need at the same time. And that need can vary a bit from one person to the next. But one of the most powerful and important needs that people are often trying to meet through their fantasies and through sex is this wanting to feel wanted, this wanting to feel desired. And so that's something that I think you can translate 
into your actual encounters by making clear your desire for your partner, right? That can take the form of words that you say to them. It can be part of your actions, things that you do, but it can be through moaning and panting and screaming. You know, there's all kinds of ways to convey that, wow, you are really hot. I really want you. And when this happens, people tend to enjoy the sex even more because they're not sitting there thinking about, well, is this person really into it? Are they really into me? Am I pleasuring them? Right. And so I think a lot of people tend to approach sex by thinking that, you know, it's, it's sort of, they feel weird about making noise, right? And they like kind of perfectly silent sexual encounters. But when there's this this sort of perfect silence, it's really hard to convey that that emotionality, that wanting, that desire. And that can, I think, ultimately inhibit and interfere with the ability to have really pleasurable and satisfying sex if you're not tapping into that deeper need that so many of us have to feel wanted. In other announcements, we are also launching a pathway with Lori Mintz. Lori Mintz is the author of the book, Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It. And we are launching a series of four workshops with Lori Mintz herself, the author of the book, Intimate Sessions, working through her book as a sort of book club over the course of a few weeks. The first session will be January 24th, and the last session will be on Valentine's Day, February 14th, so that you can get cliterate by Valentine's Day. I never actually really thought about this idea of silent sexual encounters. I'm now going to come up with an acronym, SSE. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's just something I never really thought about, but I'm sure is out there. And I think so many of us approach sex that way, where we're not treating it like the multi-sensory experience that it is, where you're tapping into all of the senses, what you can see, what you can feel, what you can smell and taste, what you can hear, right? All of these things play an important role in our sexual arousal. And if you're not tapping into all of them and you're just making it about sort of that physical touch, I think you might be missing out on a lot of potential pleasure. I love that multidimensional pleasure, and we're big on actionable advice here, and I would love to just put this challenge out there to everybody listening to, you know, perhaps make the next, and I'm not even going to say, you know, sexual encounter, I'll say intimate encounter, perhaps for some who may have not yet more flexibly adopted, you know, a, a newer definition, but to make it a multi-dimensional kind of sensory experience and heck you know see if you can create an experience that involves all of you know all five sensations and maybe you don't have to do all of them at the all same five. time <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> um, you know, start you, you work two. your way <laughs> yes you know and, and there's all kinds of things you can do like when it comes but they're all there too it's like scent is there these subtleties it's just that 
I don't think we even tap into it. We don't notice them even, you know, it doesn't even have to be lighting a candle or anything. It could just be kind of leaning in and kind of more bringing attention to the senses that are already there. And maybe that involves, you know, closing your eyes or having that moment of silence and shutting out some of the other senses to tune into, you know, one at a time, but kind of using it as you were speaking about, for example, when people talk more, it it takes them out of their head. And we've done an interview with Lori Mintz about mindfulness and again, how, you know, dirty talk or these things, or as you've mentioned in your research, BDSM, all these things can almost serve as a tool for mindfulness because what they do is kind of force people out of their head and into the present moment or into the moment with someone else instead of just with themselves. Absolutely. It, it is so important to learn how to focus on that sensory input during sex and the different sensations that you have throughout your body rather than getting lost in your head and thinking about how do I look? What do I have to do after sex is over? What's, what's What time do I have to get up tomorrow morning, right? All of these things are ultimately self-defeating thoughts in bed because they pull us out of the moment. They make it harder to stay aroused. They can delay orgasm. Uh, they can make us feel less connected to our partner. And so, um, you know, as a result, it might feel like a less satisfying encounter for a lot of people. So it's really important to find ways to learn to really be in that moment during sex. Do you have any other kind of actionable advice within that same vein or, you know, whatever else that you would want to extend to our listeners? So I think, you know, one thing that is helpful and actionable is to really have more conversations with your partner about your sexual fantasies because so many of us just keep that to ourselves. We feel this shame and anxiety about it. And ultimately it prevents us from getting what we really want in bed. And the research backs us up that there are studies showing that the couples who share their fantasies with each other and who act on them are the most sexually satisfied and the most likely to say that they're keeping passion alive. And also, if you look at research on heterosexual women, the women who are sharing their fantasies and acting on them are having the most orgasms. And so if we want to talk about something like closing the orgasm gap, tapping into our fantasies could be one tool that helps us to do that. So when it comes to sharing fantasies, I think there's really a couple of steps. One is starts with self-acceptance. You have to feel good about yourself before you can put yourself in that position of vulnerability. I love that it's such an important, you know, the foundation always comes back to our relationship with ourself being the foundational building block of everything. It does. And it's so important in this area of sexual fantasies where there's just so much shame that's often tied up in them. But once you kind of get that self-acceptance piece out of the way, then it's really, okay, how do we start sharing our fantasies with each other. And one tool I like to recommend for people who have never really had these conversations with a partner before is to try an app where uh, two of them I like to recommend. One is called X Confessions. The other one is called Own Your Sex. And they're both sort of like Tinder for sexual fantasies where you and your partner each download the app, you sync your accounts, you're presented with a list of fantasies, you swipe right on the ones you're into and left on the ones you aren't. And then the app will only share with you 
the areas where you're a match. So in that way, you don't have to reveal something that your partner isn't into. And this is a way of really quickly and easily honing in on what your shared interests are. And then you can use that as a a springboard for how do you want to further incorporate your fantasies into your sex life? Do you want to talk dirty about them? Do you want to make a plan to maybe even act on some of them? And, you know, when it comes to acting on fantasies, that's a whole other story. (laughs) Take it slow, do some research, plan ahead, adjust your expectations, because sometimes it takes a little practice to perfect a fantasy. Right. It's Progress over perfection, because perfection doesn't exist. Um, a couple of things there. One, those games sound so fun. And for, again, I just feel like everything applies for things outside of the bedroom as well. You know, whether it's a date night or all these other things, you know, finding out where that compatibility is, exploring uh, different options and considering things perhaps you wouldn't have on your own and coming together to to see how you feel about them inside or outside the bedroom can be so valuable. Uh, to touch on quickly, you know, the reality check factor, you mentioned that for people's number one fantasy, for a lot of them, it is something they want to try. But then there are also fantasies that people perhaps don't want to try. They're just there. And, you know, it would be a different were it to be real. It's not actually a desire or certain things, you know, that just logistically are a bit more difficult and just don't live up to a fantasy in in the real world. Fantasies are complicated when it comes to acting them real out. life. And real yeah. life is even more complicated than the fantasies. And I think you know, something that's important to keep in mind is that even if you and your partner have the same fantasy, like let's say you both have a threesome fantasy, well, maybe that threesome plays out in a totally different way in each of your heads, right? Because maybe you both want to be the center of attention. Maybe the gender composition of the partners involved is different for each of you. And so it's really important to kind of get on the same page about what it is that you want out of this experience and how you make it work for both of the partners. And so sometimes what I like to recommend is that you're not going to exactly replicate the fantasy that you have in your head. You're going to find a compromised fantasy with your partner that ensures that both of you are comfortable with it and you're having your needs met. So there's a lot of really important communication that has to happen where you're planning ahead, thinking this through. And you're also both going in with a realistic mindset saying, hey, we don't know what's going to happen. And as a result, we're going to have a safe word so that we can end this if it gets awkward or we decide that you know it's just not going right for, for either one of us. And so having that exit strategy in place is really important. But then after you act on the fantasy, that communication afterwards is so important too, where you can do a check-in and talk about what went well and what didn't and what might you like to try differently next time. And I think it's really important if you act on a fantasy and it doesn't go well, don't say, eh, that's not for me. (laughs) Because maybe there are tweaks and modifications and things you can do to make that experience better the next time. Sometimes it just, it takes a bit of practice where you're just kind of trying different things, seeing what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I love that really important part about how the real world application of it might be different. It might be kind of a metaphorical exploration of that or an abbreviated version or even 
you know, for some people, perhaps it's even just talking about it and talking out the fantasy and engaging, kind of being in the fantasy with a partner that might be in and of itself enough. You also talked about kind of a couple of those really important ways to start the conversation. And you, you know, have previously talked about, you know, go slow being an important part of things. And so perhaps if you could just elaborate a bit more on some of these important communicational points. Yeah. So when it comes to sharing fantasies, assuming you're not using one of these apps, go slow. You don't need to get your most adventuresome fantasy out there right away. Start by sharing some of your more vanilla fantasies and go back and forth sharing these fantasies to build up trust and intimacy in your sexual communication skills. Because many people aren't used to talking a lot about sex. They're used to having sex, but not to talking about it. So you have to build up those communication skills first, build up that sense of trust, because that's going to be invaluable when it comes to actually acting on your fantasies. And then when you want to go to act on the fantasies, again, it's also important to take it slow. Don't jump into the most adventuresome one right away. As I often like to say, it's baby steps to whips and chains, right? (laughs) (laughs) One chain at a time. Yes. Take it slow. Um, And remember, you've got time. And as I also said, sometimes you'll find that there are things you like, things you don't like. And so if you don't go full on immersion (laughs) into that really wild fantasy that you've had, you might find very early on, oh, hey, maybe this isn't for me. Or, oh, I really like it, but I really want to do it this way or that way. And so just taking it slow is helpful. And it's also really helpful if maybe, you know, neither of you are experienced with this. And if you say want to enter the world of BDSM, you know, this is important for safety concerns to ensure that everyone's health and well-being is is looked after. So again, do that research, plan ahead, follow safety protocols, have a safe word. And, uh, you know, again, just, just take it slow. One of the things I wanted to just jump back to is speaking of actionable advice, there was a term you mentioned uh, in one of your interviews that was coital alignment. And I just wanted to have you briefly touch on that. Yeah, so the coital alignment technique is a sexual position that has been scientifically shown to increase the odds of a woman orgasming during penile vaginal intercourse. And it also increases the odds of simultaneous orgasm. And basically, it's a modified missionary position where you've got a man and a woman having sex, the male partner is on top, but he leans further forward than he normally would to the point where the base of his penis is coming into contact with her clitoris. And you're maintaining this constant penile clitoral connection by rocking back and forth rather than engaging in in and out thrusting. And so by providing that direct clitoral stimulation, it seems to increase the odds of women orgasming and men and women orgasming at the same time. To touch uh, back on the research a bit, the work kind of discusses some really interesting differences in in gender uh, between men and women and the ways that they go about fantasizing. Could you expand a bit on on some of those interesting differences? Yeah. So when you look at the history of sexual fantasy research, it seems to suggest that men and women are just 
total polar opposites, <laughs> that men are very adventuresome in their fantasies and women are very emotional and, and romantic. And what I find is that men and women while there are some differences, actually have a heck of a lot in common. And that most of the things that men have fantasized about, women have fantasized about as well. It is the case that on average, men fantasize about threesomes and group sex and non-monogamy more often than women do. And that women fantasize about passion and romance more often than men do. But when we start characterizing certain fantasies as female desires or as male desires, I think that that's a a gross over-exaggeration because most of us, uh, regardless of our gender and our sexual orientation, have fantasized about the same things. But some of the key differences we see is that in general, men do have more taboo sexual fantasies than women do. Uh, and in that taboo category, that includes things like fetishes and you know voyeurism and exhibitionism, public sex, like that kind of stuff. Um, and we also see that men have more of what I call gender-bending fantasies, where they fantasize about sort of playing with their gender role and expression, whether that's through cross-dressing or having a fantasy about what it would be like to be a different sex or gender. And by contrast, women have more fantasies than men about what I call sexual flexibility, where they're fantasizing about something that is inconsistent with their sexual orientation. And most commonly, this involves women who identify as exclusively heterosexual, who fantasize about a same-sex experience. And this was actually one of the biggest gender differences I saw in my study, was that more than half of women who said they are exclusively heterosexual had a same-sex fantasy compared to only about a quarter of men exclusively heterosexual men who reported the same thing. And were there some of studies, and correct me if I'm wrong, that looked at kind of women's sexual fantasies being a bit more adventurous and that actually some of men's might involve more emotional content? Yeah, and that is one of the takeaways from my study is that when you compare my work to the previous research, I see that women's fantasies are more adventuresome than the previous studies have led us to believe, and that men's fantasies have more emotion-based content to them as well. And part of the reason for this may be because I asked a heck of a lot more questions, uh, and I also recruited a much larger and more diverse group of participants than a lot of the previous studies that are out there, which, like I said, are mostly based on college students. So when we start looking at a broader cross-section of the population, we seem to find that, you know, a lot of those stereotypes uh, seem to be overgeneralizations and exaggerations. Right. It's almost comical to think that sex and sexuality research is based on college students. For everybody listening who's in college, there's so much more. <laughs> it awaits you and it's great what's funny is uh some of my colleagues and i conducted uh, a study on threesomes a couple of years ago it's actually just about to come out in a journal um so we can talk about that next time we do a podcast but um part of our reason for doing that study was because all of the previous research on threesomes was based on college students and almost none of them were doing it <laughs> <laughs> 
I bet they were talking about it a ton, though. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Um, But we also saw this huge gender gap where women were like, I'm just not into it at all. And I'm like, well, let's, let's explore this with a more diverse group of people. And what we find is that you know, when you start looking beyond college students, women are a heck of a lot more interested in threesomes and everybody's more experienced with them. And so, yeah, we just, we can't base everything on college students anymore. Yeah. It's just, again, I can't stress enough. There's so much more and like not even, you know, in your later twenties, thirties, you know, as we talked about earlier, apparently you're just getting started and it's all about the the 40s and the 50s. So oh, yeah. Something to look forward to. Absolutely. Um, some of the other kind of little differences that I remember were, you know, for men, it was actually more important to have a specific person in mind that they were kind of visualizing in these fantasies. Yet for women... It could be a bit more vague and and it wasn't as much about kind of that other character and also differences in terms of the lens through which they were seeing the fantasy as kind of through their own eyes or as kind of the, I don't want to use the word object of desire, but kind of the, I will say the principal character (laughs) of desire, (laughs) the protagonist. Yeah, so... This is something that I did find to be really interesting is that, you know, for example, when men are describing their their fantasies, that having that other specific person in mind was really, really important to them. Um, whereas women were more likely to report fantasies about a vague, faceless person, right? The other person didn't matter quite as much in their fantasy. And I think it is very much tied to the fact that there does seem to be a difference in how men and women visualize their sexual fantasies. And unfortunately, this was something I didn't realize until after I'd conducted my work, is that I really needed to ask more about specifically the way that people saw that fantasy play out in their head. So was it from this first person perspective where you're looking through your own eyes and where maybe you're seeing the other person and they are the focus of your fantasy. And so as a result, maybe that's why it's more important to have that other specific person in mind. Or when you're fantasizing, is it sort of this third person, like you're watching a movie perspective, in which case, um, you know, maybe you know, you are the focus of it and the other people or persons involved don't matter quite as much. So that's something I want to look at in my future work. I didn't think to to ask about the first and third person perspective, but I suspect that that might be part of what might be driving this gender difference. And the focus really kind of being on, it sounds like for women in their fantasies on their own kind of pleasure. Footnote, if you want to make it into the fantasy, focus on female pleasure. Well, it's also been interesting to hear people's reactions to that. They say, well, does that mean that women are more sexually selfish or they're like uh, more self-absorbed in their fantasies or what? And, you know, I think the answer is we don't know exactly what this means yet. I don't think that's what that means. (laughs) I don't either. <laughs> because also I would imagine for a lot of men they might be having the same fantasy as that woman for example 
Sure. And I think there's likely to be, again, a lot of individual variability. And whenever we're talking about gender differences, we're talking about on average. And I think it's always Which important to clarify. Which is a dangerous place. Yeah. Yes. It's always important to clarify that just because you're different from some average, that doesn't mean that you're abnormal or that there's something wrong with you. There's always a lot of individual variability. So don't get too hung up on comparing yourself to average. That number is literally one out of thousands. Um, so it's just kind of the aggregation versus not the representation of the full image and the full spectrum. And again, just how much of this changes, not only person to person and how, you know, sex and sexuality can look so different from an individual to an individual, but that same individual with a different partner can be an entire world of difference, you know, at a different stage in their life, under different circumstances. It can be an entirely different picture. And I feel as though that's just one of the most important takeaways in talking about sex and sexuality is just the the vast variability, not just on an individual, but also on a circumstantial level. Absolutely. And, you know, then there's also that piece as well about how sex differs and varies cross-culturally. You know, my work was based in the United States. And so if you look at sexual fantasies and more sex positive or sexually open cultures where maybe they have a very different view on sex and aging, for example, uh, would you find that there would be pretty big differences in the ways that people engage with their fantasies earlier on in their lives and uh, the ways that, uh, you know, sex changes for them over time. That's something that I think I'd really like to look at in my future work is that cultural piece and how much of our fantasy content and the way that we feel about them is shaped by the given culture or society that we just happen to exist in. Right. And while, you know, the U.S., we don't even have time to get into this, but the U.S., you know, people think of it and look at it and our media would say, you know, it's this sexually liberated place. But actually, so many of the foundational pillars and structures and cultural aspects would tell a different story. And there's a lot of this kind of undercurrent of religion and the U.S. being this kind of puritanical place, and again, just this is a huge source of the shame, whether people realize it or not, whether or not you were even raised religiously, this makes it in. And one of you know my favorite interviews, episodes seven and eight, goes into to religion and a bunch of this stuff. Um, and so speaking on that kind of cultural level and, and that aspect of things, one of the you know, findings from your research that I do feel like relates a bit to that is the fact that two people can have, you know, what appears to be the same fantasy, but for completely different reasons. And there are so many experiences and conversations or lack of conversations and exposure to certain things and influences um, culturally societally, you know, um, language-wise, just so many different influences that can lead to two people having the same fantasy, but for completely different reasons. And would just love to have you expand a bit on that, because I just found it 
you know, so interesting. Yeah. So if you look at something like a threesome fantasy, which was actually the most popular fantasy that emerged on the survey, um, you know, these fantasies, they played out in a whole bunch of different ways. But I think that that's telling of the what it is that's driving people to that fantasy in the first place. So, for example, for many people, their threesome fantasy is actually about this need or want to feel overwhelmingly desired, right? Because what could be more validating than one partner <laughs> wanting you passionately, but having two partners who, who want you passionately, where you're the center of attention in this, in this situation. Um, but if you look at other people's threesome fantasies, you know, for some of them, they're not the center of attention. And it's more about this sort of voyeuristic experience, you know, what they can see when there's another person involved. And for some people, it's about just novelty, just something different. It's a way of sort of mixing things up. And it's nothing really beyond that, right? Because you can try different positions and do different things with an extra person that you couldn't do with just one other partner. And this is true of all different types of fantasies. I mean, I also saw a study recently on people who are into BDSM that asked them how they got into it in the first place. And for some people, there was sort of this lifelong attraction to pain that drew them to it, right? They can remember being very young. And, you know, for example, one participant talked about how when they got their ear pierced at a very young age, they couldn't resist just twisting the earring in their ear and the sensation of the pain that it caused. And they were just kind of always drawn to it. But there were other people who said that they were introduced to BDSM by a partner. They'd never thought about it before, but later in life, a partner suggested it, they tried it, they liked it, and so they learned it. Um, and then you also have people who um, have chronic illnesses who were drawn to BDSM because this was a way for them to sort of take control of this chronic pain that they have in their lives and to take control of their lives. And so I just find it so fascinating to look at our sexual interests, where they come from, and how there's just such a different story for everyone in terms of how they came to, to where they are. And so that's why in the book, I talk a lot about how your fantasies say something really important about you, your personality, your sexual history and learning experiences, who you are, where you are in your life right now. I think that's so fascinating, the kind of infinite possibilities for how people have arrived at that place or that fantasy or that experience. As we get ready to, to wrap up, there was this idea of the multifactorial model that I wanted to have you touch on. And you spoke to it in, in the interview I heard in regards to erectile dysfunction, but I imagine that it's relevant to anything. And I think it's a really important kind of thinking exercise and methodology through which to approach sex and sexuality and again, life in general. Yeah. So sex is always multifactorial. And that's true when we're talking about sexual fantasies and how they can have very diverse roots and sources. But it's also true when we're talking about things like sexual difficulties, such as erectile dysfunction. There is a lot that's being said and written in the media right now about something called porn-induced erectile dysfunction. And a lot of these articles say that there's this growing epidemic of ED among young men today, and that it's all driven by 
easy access to the largest collection of porn ever known to, to, to humankind. But the problem in that line of thinking is that they're just assuming that porn has this causal role and that nothing else has changed in our lives in the last 10, 20 or so years, right? So yes, it's true that we have access to more porn than ever before, and it's easier than ever to access pornography. But during that same period of time, we've also seen rising rates of depression and anxiety among young adults. More of them are taking selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs like Prozac. And one of the side effects of Prozac is that it makes it more difficult to have an erection. We've also seen rising rates of binge drinking and alcohol consumption, which we know also have negative effects on, on sexual performance. Um, and, and so, so many different things have changed that could be contributing to why you might have more young adults today complaining of erectile issues. And so, you know, whenever a sex therapist is dealing with a client who has a sexual performance issue, it's always a tough job for them to figure out what is the exact source or cause because there are so many different potential things in our lives that could be causing or contributing to them. And so it's it's often this big hunt that you have to go on to figure out the right source in order to give people the best solution. And unfortunately, you know, the way our medical system works is that a lot of people don't want to go through the hard work of figuring out what the actual source is. They just want to be given a pill. And so you have a lot of guys who just go in and say, I need Viagra. But, you know, and while that may provide a, a temporary fix, to them, it doesn't deal with the underlying issue that caused the problem in the first place. Um, and so it might not lead them to have a more fulfilling sexual or, or intimate life because they're not confronting the underlying issues. Absolutely. I think that's a really, really key point there. And that's why I love sex as a metaphor, because again, it's often about something else than what people choose to make it about. And, you know, what people often pinpoint on physiological things are often psychological. And many, you know, sex therapists will say, unless it's, you know, a diagnosable medical condition, a lot of these things are, you know, in our head and can be traced back to you know, even things just like stress at work or stress in life, disconnection between the couple can be a metaphor for where the couple is at or where that one person is. You know, if it's with a changing partner, multiple partners, where they're at in their own life, it can be a metaphor for so many other things and the important distinguishment between kind of the physiological and the psychological and them being as well closely related with the, the mind-body connection, but really questioning the way we're going about looking at things. And again, the the stories that we're telling ourselves playing such a key role in all of this. Yeah. And I think all too often we make the mistake of looking at our health as separate from our sexual health. And these things are intimately connected. So your sexual health and you know how your sex life is going that will come back and influence your overall physical and, and psychological well-being 
right? Um, we know, for example, that sex makes people happier. It makes them feel more meaning in life. People are actually more productive in the workplace on days after they've had sex, right? So, you know, sex has all of these positive effects on our, you know, sort of overall physical and, and mental health. I should also mention that people who orgasm <laughs> more frequently uh, actually live longer. The secret to a long life is to have a lot of orgasms. But also, you know, it goes the other way around where your overall physical and psychological health impact your sexual health. So if you're dealing with stress, anxiety, depression, other mental health issues, that's going to affect your sexual performance. And if you're not in good physical health, that's going to affect your sexual performance as well. Uh, in fact, in some studies, they've done randomized controlled trials with men who have erectile dysfunction. And they find that just by putting those men on a different diet and exercise routine, by losing weight, having a healthier lifestyle, they can actually reverse erectile dysfunction without the need for them to take medication or pills. And so I think we need to think about sexual health and our overall health as these things that come back and intimately influence one another. And we can't treat them as separate and we can't neglect one because that's going to have negative consequences for the other. And I'm a true believer in kind of, you know, diet and exercise being the first line of treatment for, you know, frankly, for everything in behavioral health and behavioral treatment and medicine. So I love that and just wanted to reiterate again that it isn't necessarily rubbing one out on a daily basis and having orgasms that will make you live long, but it's all the factors that contribute to experiencing you know, pleasure more often or the ability to. So being healthy, again, that diet and exercise, uh, having less stress, being more mindful, creating moments for that connection, right? It's all of that that is what, you know, leads to that pleasure, not just in the form of an orgasm, but that pleasure experiencing life in general that leads to a longer and more fulfilling life itself. And I think there's truth to that, but there are also other things that may be tied in with those orgasms where if you're having sex, that is a form of exercise. And on average, um, if you look at young heterosexuals, young heterosexual men burn 101 calories, young heterosexual women burn 69 calories every time they, they have sex. And they found that in studies where people wear Fitbits when they're engaged in sexual activity. We're talking about averages here and, you know, average length of time for men to orgasm during penile vaginal intercourse is five minutes. And most heterosexual encounters total, including foreplay, are less than 15 minutes, right? So that's not an opportunity to burn a lot of calories. But if you expand your sexual routine and repertoire and maybe take a hint from lesbians who on average have sex for 45 minutes each time they do it, right? Um, maybe you'll, you'll burn a bit more. I love that. When I was going through your research, and this is kind of jumping a bit outside of the realm of sex and sexuality, but this was actually the finding that I found most interesting as well as just surprising. And this was the idea that more people in the United States now believe in the idea of a soulmate than they have in the past. And not only that, but millennials and younger generations were the people who believed in it the most. And I just, I think I 
kind of just <laughs> had to like rewind and listen again when I heard that because it was one thing when I was surprised more people believe in it than before. And then I assumed millennials and younger generations would be the ones to believe in it the least. And then to kind of hear that, where's that coming from? And and how interesting is that? Yeah. I mean, for as much as we hear about millennials being the polyamory open relationship generation, I mean, I, I found that fascinating that, you know, in these public opinion polls, they were actually showing the, the strongest belief in this idea of a soulmate. And I think that speaks to the power of our culture in shaping our beliefs about what a successful, happy, healthy relationship looks like. Because popular media depictions, you know, you don't see diversity in relationships <laughs> shown very much. You know, yes, you see same-sex relationships today, which you didn't really see very much in the past, but you don't really see people doing anything other than monogamy. And we learn so much about infidelity and how it's this terrible thing and it destroys relationships and marriages and and all of these other things. And And so people are taught from a very young age from their families, from their churches or uh, other religious institutions and from the broader culture that they're surrounded by in the media, that there is this one perfect person out there. When you meet them, everything's going to work out easily and it's going to be just like you see in the movies. And, you know, the reality is that it's not like that at all. And that that's actually a really unhealthy way of approaching relationships. Because when people hold this belief in relationship destiny, then they're very attuned to early signs that there might be a problem. And so they end up just jumping ship before they've ever really given the relationship a chance. And so what we see is that people with destiny beliefs break up faster and just have a harder time ultimately finding love. And again, this goes back to that growth mindset that we talked about earlier on, which is that the people who are happier in their relationships are the ones who say, you know, I can make any relationship work if I have the right skill set for navigating that relationship. So suddenly the issue you're presented with is not finding that one right person, but finding someone and choosing to work on that and see if you can turn that relationship into what you want it to be mutually. I love that. And I couldn't help but think of this metaphor as a recipe, right? Where, you know, every time you make it, it could be a bit different. Every relationship can be a bit different, but it's about identifying what those key ingredients are and the things that you know you need and want in the relationship. But then beyond that, the ability to kind of change it and and revisit and evolve as you go. And a couple of the things I picked up on there being, you know, this difference between the public and the private, what we say versus what we think and what we actually do. You know, the key lesson that nothing in real life is like it is in the movies, which although we all know on the surface, somehow gets lost in our own heads at times, and that nothing should be static. And, you know, everything should be and is, whether we accept it or not, dynamic. And that the more we can kind of lean into that dynamicy, the more we ourselves 
as well of our as well as our relationships can evolve and be more fulfilling as a result. You know, and as we were speaking, I was thinking about one other problem with the sort of destiny approach to relationships, which is that it kind of implies that there's only one relationship in your life that you'll ever get anything out of. Which is terrifying. <laughs> right? <laughs> but a different way of thinking about relationships is that you might have multiple relationships that are meaningful over the course of your life. And it's kind of funny, when I was training as a social psychologist who was studying relationships, the way that we quantified relationship success was by how long-lasting people's relationships were. And, you know, just because a relationship is long-lasting doesn't mean that it's a good or healthy relationship, right? Um, and so I think we need to get away from from that idea and recognize that, you know, you might have a series of shorter term relationships over the course of your life, and maybe you'll take something different and unique and distinct out of all of them and can really grow from that as a person and learn more about yourself and what it is that you want. And so all of those relationships can ultimately build off of one another, feed into one another and help you to find the, the relationship that you ultimately, uh, you know, end up in. Absolutely. And that can be over time or even within the same moment. And, you know, whether that's with multiple partners or just remembering there are all these relationships outside of a romantic relationship and the different key ingredients that you might get from friends or family or community members, or perhaps be able to find more of within yourself. Sure. And I would just like to add to what I said that there's no one right way really to do relationships. And if you want to be monogamous, because that's what works for you, great. If you want to be polyamorous or be in an open relationship or be a swinger, that's great too. I think it's really important to, to try different things, to really know yourself and to figure out what it is that works out well for you rather than trying to fit yourself into some model of a relationship that you've been told you should have. Because I think that's where people get into trouble. So above all, remember, different things work for different people. And it's really important to know yourself. Absolutely. Coming back to the self and different things for different people and also at different times in your life. So don't forget those check-ins and, and to remember that you, your desires, your needs, your fantasies, and your reality is dynamic and will continue to grow and evolve as you should lean into that process and the adventure that it will take you on. Well, thank you so much for your time and all of this wonderful insight. And I think there is a plethora <laughs> of things we could continue to talk about. And did you say you're working on a new book or was it just new a new round of research? I have a lot of things I'm working on at the moment. Right, a bunch um, of <laughs> and so we'll have to, you know, touch base again and, and see where you're at with some of the, the new things you're working on. Sounds good. I'd be happy to do it. We're really excited to announce that we already have partnered up with one of our favorite companies called Actually. And Actually is providing couples paths, which are sort of a modern take on couples counseling, but way cooler. So 
Studies have shown that premarital counseling improves relationship satisfaction by as much as 30%. And 30% might not sound like a ton. It's like borderline, would you buy it or not if it's 30% off? But let's think about that is the difference between living in a C minus, borderline D plus, all right? For thinking 70% to 100%, that is the difference between a C minus, D plus, and an A plus, 100%. So this is huge. And the reason why this is huge is because counseling traditionally is the place where you'd talk about the tough stuff. You would dig into finances, splitting the work at home, having a dual career, communication, sex, intimacy, values, and planning for the future. But unfortunately, these things have traditionally only been offered through your rabbi or the church or associated with religious organizations or your parents. What do they give you? Not that much. They tell you marriage is tough, but you know it doesn't go much deeper than that. So actually, is providing a totally secular, totally modern, awesome take on big topics. And this is a series of five expert-led virtual sessions for you and your partner to join together to talk about big stuff. These couples' paths are an incredible opportunity at any stage to really dig deep and connect with your partner. And here's the thing. This is the kind of stuff that we can dig into in the beginning and make sure we're on the same page and we're building on that shared understanding and foundation much earlier on. So this is a perfect program for any couple, especially couples who might be going through big transitions, a move, a new job, a new phase of the relationship, whether that's after you've been dating for a year and you really want to get serious and invest more in your relationship together, whether you've just got engaged and you want to make sure you're setting yourself up for success in marriage. This program is incredible. And not only are you looking at 30% increased relationship satisfaction, but you're also going to be getting 30% off with the code BBXX30. So if you want to sign up, check out letsactuallygo.com. And from that page, you can link out to the virtual paths page to get more information about these pathways. And that's at letsactuallygo.com slash virtual dash paths. You can also check out the link in our bio on our Instagram at bbxx.world. If you're signed up for our newsletter, you're going to be getting more announcements about this. And they're doing new pathways every couple of weeks. So They've got one coming up on November 14th, another one on December 1st. And again, this is the perfect time to set your relationship up for success, set yourself up for success going into the end of 2020 to make sure you're starting off 2021 on the right foot, ready to take on the new year as a team. Thank you for sticking with me on those exciting announcements. I truly hope you check that out. And if you're not currently in a relationship, be sure to share it with anybody you know. You can get more information on our newsletter and on our Instagram. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned, 
and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the book club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.